Hi, I'm Bob Eckblad. Welcome to my podcast, Disciple, Word, Spirit, Justice, and Witness. Today I want to talk with you about Jesus' prophetic discipleship movement according to Matthew's Gospel. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives long and detailed instructions to his 12 disciples that show a broad ministry that includes proclamation, miraculous signs and wonders, vulnerable presence, and prophetic speech. Jesus' prophetic mandate includes both revelation of liberating news and also the exposure of hidden crimes of powerful perpetrators. Matthew's prophetic exposure um, and the emphasis that he has draws clearly from God's revelation of judgment of the concealed atrocities that are presented in Isaiah 26, 20-21, which we'll be looking at later. Right now, I'm convinced that this is the time for disciples of Jesus, all of us, to recover a prophetic voice, or perhaps to just step into one for the first time, that expresses both liberating messages and also brings into light concealed bloodshed and injustices. We need to be inviting confession, lament, repentance, acts of justice, and restoration, and calling people into a a liberating alternative. Jesus-inspired prophetic witness like this has been on display in many settings throughout the world, and we just need to have that happen in a more full-on way everywhere. And we can learn a lot from the larger body of Christ, especially in the global south and in places where the church is persecuted. We can learn so much from our, our sisters and brothers about what true holistic gospel proclamation looks like. So let's look now at how Matthew portrays Jesus as both modeling and mobilizing prophetic disciples, beginning among the lost sheep of the house of Israel and expanding to the entire world. So let's look at the literary context of Matthew 10, 26 to 27, which is the text that I'm going to be focusing on. So in Matthew 10, and we've looked at that this in previous podcasts, Jesus first sends his 12 disciples as missionaries to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and not to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. And those lost sheep sheep appear to include crowds under Roman occupation, who are depicted just prior to Jesus' commission as distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus... um, You know, we've seen this, um, how he summons his disciples and gives them authority in ways that evoke the Lord's call and sending of Moses and Aaron to the Israelite slaves in Egypt. It's just so beautiful how scripture, like New Testament scripture, draws from the Old Testament in in really um, clear and sometimes sort of cryptic ways. You know, um, Moses and Aaron, they were armed with the liberating message and a staff and signs and wonders, weren't they, in Exodus chapter 4. And now Jesus instructs the twelve to preach the message that the kingdom of God is at hand. And they are to enact the kingdom in ways he's already demonstrated himself through his healing ministry and through his proclamation. And he commands them to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Wow, it's like Jesus is calling us to the highest place you know, inviting us, um, in this case, his previous disciples, but I believe were included, to step into the fullness of what he was about, what he did, even the things that we would normally think, well, that was Jesus, but me? Disciples are to go out as vulnerable missionaries without money or extra clothes, 
And so they are sent out weaker than even Moses and Aaron because they're to go out without sandals or staff. And um, we looked at how it's interesting how they don't, they don't carry a staff. And when you think about the lost sheep of the house of Israel or the lost sheep of our own communities, oftentimes they're expecting a beating of sorts. But, you know, um, so the missionaries are, are, are sent out in a very even weaker, more vulnerable state. And they're sent out also as guests to receive hospitality from the households that are deemed worthy. And they're to, to greet, stay with, and bless those people with peace. And um, in contrast, though, whoever does not receive these disciples or pay attention to their words receives a prophetic rebuke. This is something I think we're a lot less comfortable with, at least I am. Unwelcome disciples are to go out of that house or city and shake the dust off of their feet. And Jesus warns, truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now this troubles me a lot because I don't like being that kind of prophetic voice that's going to say something that could be interpreted as a threat. And yet I believe that we need to let ourselves be challenged by Jesus's words, including the ones that we don't like. The sending of the 12 here is reminiscent of the Lord's sending of the two angels to Sodom, which is just a crazy connection, but very much present. You know, they're sent down to see if the people of Sodom had done entirely according to the outcry, which had come to the Lord, right? That's what Genesis 20 or 18, 22 says. So they're actually going down to Sodom on a fact-finding mission. And, um, and there they experience, um, you know, um, firsthand, they, they experience, you know, a lot of really negative activity towards themselves, don't they? Now the lost sheep of the house of Israel, God's chosen people, are at risk of a worse fate than that of Sodom and Gomorrah, should they refuse the messengers and those messengers, including perhaps you and me. Jesus provides prophetic warning to these messengers with sober details. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of people, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. That's Matthew 10, 17 to 18. So Jesus clearly states that they will be given prophetic revelation that will enable them to bear witness before authorities when they're arrested. So arrest is in the works, isn't it? And, um, but Jesus says, don't be afraid. When they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Those are verses uh, 19 and 20 of Matthew 10. So here we have that notion of the prophetic um, prophetic revelation being given in the midst of persecution as um, a help for self-defense, but for witness, even more so than self-defense. Jesus goes on to describe family members betraying one another to death, just children rising up against parents, putting them to death. I mean, it's a, it's a, very violent and unsettling prognosis. Jesus says, you will be hated by all because of my name. By all because of the name of Jesus? Do you see that happening already? I mean, I see people hating 
Christians who are annoying and who are, I think, missing it a lot of times. But I think also there's plenty of persecution underway against anyone who's carrying the name of Jesus, who's, who's really proclaiming in the name of Jesus the gospel. It is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved, Jesus says. Then he prophesies a tough road ahead for his followers prior to his return. He says, but whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. So persecution is, is, a guaranteed, is, is guaranteed as part of our future. Clearly um, a hard word for prosperity gospel people, isn't it? Ourselves perhaps included. For truly I say to you, Jesus says, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. So then Matthew's gospel goes on to present Jesus himself as experiencing what he warns his future disciples that they too will experience. And he clarifies that his disciples will become like their teacher. You know, we um, will become like our teacher, Jesus, if we follow in that path of learning from him, of coming to him, right, when we're weary and heavy laden and, and receiving his yoke. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 24 to 25, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they've called the head of the household Baalzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Wow, do we want to become like our teacher Jesus? Do we want to become like our master Jesus? I say that I do. I, I want to. You know, Lord, have mercy, you know, help us. Now let's look at Matthew 10, 26 to 27. So like right after this bleak prognosis that Jesus gives of what disciples can expect among their own people, Jesus addresses them with words that I'll spend the rest of our time commenting on. In verses 26 to 27 of Matthew 10, he says, Therefore, do not fear them, for there's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. So here um, we see that Jesus directly addresses the most natural human tendency to be terrified and intimidated into silence by persecutors, right? When he says to his disciples, do not fear them. He tells us not to fear because we need him to tell us that. And them would include, in the case of the disciples, fellow Jews, you know, fellow Israelites, religious authorities, and also non-Jewish authorities. You know, they'll be brought before kings. And um, so anyway, the reason that is, um, that's given is not, um, is not cryptic. It's, uh, I mean, the fear is, is very real. There's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden. That will not be known. Um, so Jesus, uh, you know, it's that that's what's supposed to comfort us is nothing that's concealed um, will remain concealed, right? It will be revealed. And um, how does that comfort us? Um, I mean, we're going to look at that in a second. Furthermore, Jesus assures his disciples that they themselves will be the agents who will reveal that which is concealed and make known what is hidden. Oh no. So it really is us that are going to be the, the people that expose, 
you know, these hidden things, whatever they are? Yes, I think so. Certainly it is true um, that the urgency of communicating the liberating message that's conveyed here, um, I mean, there's that urgency in the disciples are to fear God more than human adversaries, right? How would that commission help them to not fear their aggressors? Now, some scholars suggest that Jesus is suggesting that what is concealed and hidden will finally come to light in the final judgment. Well, that's a long ways off. But this interpretation, I believe it's possible. And um, it's suggested by others who identify the secret things with the plots of Jesus's opponents, which will eventually come to light. But of course, Jesus knew those plots right prior. And he told his disciples, look, I'm gonna, we're going to go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the hand of sinners, you know, where he'll be, he'll be crucified and executed. And on the third day, he'll rise. So does that suggest then that some of these secret things are, are include revelation about our own destiny and, and what's coming our way? And, and that Jesus, uh, we can expect that the Holy Spirit's going to be alerting us to troubles that are sort of in our path? I think, I think so. Might Jesus also be stating here that fear must be overcome by the assurance that what has been concealed and hidden in the hearts of the disciples, you know, like the teaching that we've received, the word of God that we've meditated on and everything will be revealed and made known through um, the proclamation of our, uh, that we would ourselves engage in as disciple spokespersons. I mean, that's encouraging because we could think, well, I'm going to be so um, intimidated that I'm going to be just uh, silenced. But Jesus is more confident and he's saying, no, you know, what's been hidden will be revealed. In fact, um, Matthew 11, 25 to 26, which comes right afterwards, does seem to show that Jesus hides revelation from the wise and the intelligent, which might be, you know, revelation also about, you know, strategies and, and you know, about what's coming who, and these wise and intelligent, could be seen as more powerful opponents of the Jesus movement, right? And um, instead, that revelation will be revealed to infants, which um, both this identifies the disciples as untrained, humble ones, you know, childlike ones, and there's an invitation here for would-be disciples to step into a childlike posture. And so here's that scripture. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. So I think persecuted disciples would be encouraged by Jesus's commitment to revealing truth to them. Especially, it's, um, it's interesting to note here that the underlying term for infants, which is the word in Greek, uh, nepios, includes the more metaphoric meaning of untaught or unskilled and um you know which is like like humble uh, uneducated people like the jesus movement was full of people like that and clearly our ministry is full of people that haven't graduated from high school or in honduras haven't even made it past third grade and so here this text is inclusive of those people as beneficiaries of the revelation and so really it's not just like we all have to go to graduate school Jesus goes on to further clarify his commitment to connect disciples to his father and theirs in, um, in the next verse, uh, Matthew eleven twenty seven. So that Jesus lifts up his uneducated, humble disciples, offering them um, direct revelation 
that would certainly encourage them. It certainly encourages me to continue forward in the face of opposition. However, I, I see some other links to Israel's prophetic tradition embodied by Jesus and passed on to his disciples, like especially the link to um, the Septuagint version of Isaiah 26, 20 to 21. And let's check that out now. Now, I know this is a pretty packed out podcast, but I just encourage you to bear with me because I think some of this teaching here is just, it's just really essential that we catch how important, you know, the prophetic exposure piece is to um, our callings as disciples of Jesus now. We see the language and the themes in Matthew 10, 26 and 27 as uh, linking directly to um, Isaiah 26. Here's the text from Isaiah 26, 20 to 21. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation or you know wrath runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. So here, Isaiah prophesies a time of indignation. That's the Greek term orge, which, uh, you know, is like often translated wrath. Um, Isaiah is saying that time of indignation must run its course. And that includes the Lord coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their lawlessness, their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. The earth will do that. So Jesus's description then of the opposition facing his prophetic discipleship movement could fit into the categories of iniquity, bloodshed, and victims also that are addressed in Isaiah 26, 21. I mean, think about all the Christians that have been killed uh, and who are just unnamed people in um, the past and in, 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 even in the present. Is Jesus strengthening future disciples' resolve through assuring them that everything done against them will come to light and that eventual justice and vindication is assured? I think so for sure. So Isaiah 26, 20's time of indignation, when the Lord comes out of his place to punish the earth's inhabitants, appears elsewhere in texts describing God's judgment, such as the flood and also the Exodus story with an interesting link, which we'll explore later in Matthew's Gospel. So, for instance, in Matthew, in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord sees the wickedness, how it was very great on the earth, and he's, he commissions Noah to build an ark, doesn't he? To bring in his family and pairs of animals before himself, um, and then closing the door behind them before the destructive flood waters come, in Genesis 7, 16. So the time of indignation running its course and the Lord coming out of his place to punish, also links this text directly to the Passover accounts in Exodus 12. And the Hebrew verb underlying running its course, Abba, which is the verb to pass over or pass through, pass on, that's the primary verb that's associated with the Lord's passing through Egypt to strike Egypt's firstborn. Wow, now that's interesting, I think. Exodus 12, verse 12 and verse 23. Um, it's not the word... Um, the verb pasa, which would be um, 
you know, the word that comes from the, uh, which the Passover comes from, but it's this word, you know, Passover. So the call to enter your rooms then can be associated with entering the ark and the Lord's instruction for the children of Israel to stay in their houses before the morning of their flight from the Egyptian oppression in the Exodus. They're first to mark their doorposts and lentils with the blood of a slaughtered lamb, staying under cover until the judgment passes, right? And uh, in Exodus, it says, you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood, which is in the basin, and apply some of the blood that's in the basin to the lentil and the two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through Abar to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the doorposts, the Lord will pass over. That's the Passover word, the door, and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. That's Exodus 12, 23. So in Exodus 26, 20, the Lord calls his people who've entered their houses and closed their doors to hide for a little while until the time of indignation passes. And this verse is both directly linked and contrasted to uh, the Septuagint of Genesis 7, 16 and Matthew 6, 6. So, um, this is some more interesting exegetical details that I hope you'll appreciate. In the Greek version of Isaiah 26.20, the underlying word behind room, like going into your room, is tamion, meaning innermost hidden secret room. And that is the same word that Jesus uses in his teaching about prayer in Matthew 6.6. 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, tamion. Close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So, um, the Greek version of Isaiah 26, 20, call to enter your room, is word for word the same as Matthew 6, 6, apart from the verb shut, which in Isaiah means to firmly shut. And um, firmly shutting the door is urged during times of upheaval, right? In contrast, though, Jesus simply tells us to go inside and shut the door, uh, that's the verb kleo, the same Greek word used for God shutting the door of the ark in the Septuagint of Genesis 7:16. So what we have in Matthew 6, though, is Jesus adds that our Father is there inside awaiting us, seeing what is done in secret and ready to reward us. So rather than hiding until the time of indignation passes, like in Isaiah, Jesus tells his disciples to pray to your Father who is in secret. So see that this is a very essential extra, you know, um, teaching of Jesus. And um, Jesus says, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So we go into our rooms and shut the door um, and we pray to our father who's in secret. And this is something that I think is essential in these days that we're living in, you know, where shutting the door would maybe include like shutting the door to, you know, Facebook and all kinds of media that is um, can really twist the way we see things. Although also we need to be informed and not be closing ourselves off completely. But, you know, um, prayer and hearing from God and letting um, that which is concealed be revealed to us is something that we must make time for. Returning now to Matthew 10, 26 to 27, we can observe a dramatic contrast with Isaiah 26, 20 to 21. In Isaiah 26, 21, it's the earth that reveals its bloodshed and doesn't cover its slain. But in Matthew 10, 26, revelation at first appears to be passive. In other words, it says there's nothing healed, 
or nothing concealed that will not be revealed. Well, by whom and to whom? Or hidden that will not be known. And it's not clear what exactly, um, you know, what will be revealed and what will be made known um, as in Isaiah. So, it, which in Isaiah, it's the bloodshed, right? Who will reveal and what has been concealed and um, who will make known what is hidden? Um, here, the text allows room, I think, for unknown actors other than Jesus' disciples to reveal and to make known, like the earth itself in, in Isaiah 26, 21. Or perhaps, you know, other people that are revealing things um, that are happening, that are hidden things. Like I think about right now, um, all across Canada in the residential schools that were set up to indoctrinate and to uh, to really like wipe out the culture of First Nations peoples, you know, back in the 1800s and the 1900s. I mean, it went all the way until, you know, the 1990s, these residential schools. Now, um, through all kinds of uh, technology, they're finding, I mean, thousands of buried uh, bodies of, of Native children. Okay, and that's all being brought into the light and not necessarily by by Christians at all, but I mean, Christians are involved in that struggle to expose this, but all over the world, there's injustices that are being exposed and often by people that are not, you know, people of Christian faith. And so um, we need to remember that, that the re revealers can be all kinds of, all kinds of people. The earth revealing or bloodshed evokes Cain's killing of his brother Abel in Genesis 4, where the Lord confronts Cain and says to him, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Genesis 4.10. So, um, see, we, we, we know that the earth is the Lord's and everyone in it. And um, there's been so many massacres that have happened. And um, in here in Isaiah, you know, God is saying, look, the earth is not going to cover over anymore um, its blood, its, its, its corpses, its bodies, and the bloodshed is going to be visible. And, and this is something that, you know, that we need to be part of that movement if, if, if God so calls us to engage in prophetic exposure. Jesus clarifies himself as the revealer in this text as well. You know, he, uh, he then mobilizes his disciples as prophets. And so let's let him mobilize you and me. He says, what I tell you in the darkness, that's plural you, by the way. So what I, Jesus, tell you, you all in the darkness, you all, plural, speak in the light. And what you, plural, hear whispered in your ear, plural again, proclaim upon the housetops. Okay, so Jesus is speaking to us hidden things. And... Um, the focus of Jesus um, on communication with God here is in alignment with Matthew, Matthew's deliberate focus on Jesus training his disciples to engage in prayer and prophetic witness, um, which is which are all based on revelation, like we've seen. So Jesus will speak to disciples in the darkness, which um, you will hear in the ear. And that must be then spoken in the light and proclaimed upon the housetops. So here we're talking about hearing from God, aren't we? 
And, um, and so do we, do you practice this where you're actually seeking to hear from God? You know, I think about, um, a podcast we had earlier about, you know, um, Isaiah chapter 50, where it says morning by morning, he will awaken me. He will awaken my ear to hear as a taught one, as a disciple. So, um, so anyway, this notion is of, of God revealing and speaking to us is in alignment with Isaiah's description of a time of exposure where injustices and crimes that are long covered up will be brought into plain view. But it's also distinct as Jesus focuses um, the disciples' attention on exposing the crimes of perpetrators, right? And as, so Jesus, um, he himself models this prophetic exposure in Matthew's gospel and the other gospel accounts all over the place, okay? He knows what his adversaries are thinking and directly addresses their secret judgments. I mean, we see that in Matthew 9, 3, and 4, and Matthew 12, 25. He challenges them publicly, you know, exposing what their thoughts are. I mean, whoa, is that something that Jesus is modeling because he expects us to step into that too? Well, why not? Jesus prophesies his own suffering at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and his eventual death in Matthew 16, 21, and 20, 18 to 19. Nowhere is, is this clearer than in the parable of the landowner in Matthew 22, 33 to 44, where Jesus exposes the vineyardists who kill the absentee landlord's son and their eventual judgment, indicting the chief priests and the Pharisees who then try to seize him in Matthew 22. Jesus um, regularly exposes and denounces the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees in ways quite similar to Israel's prophets. Like uh, we see that in Matthew 23, 1 to 33. And, you know, some, some of us, you know, we want to be about unity and we want to be about um, like really honoring one another. And we, and we do need to honor one another, but we mustn't be muted when we see um, false prophecies, when we see um, the name of Jesus being used to uh, justify invasions, like what we're seeing with Russia right now, or what we saw uh, during the Gulf War, you know, back when the United States, after 9-11, when we invaded Iraq and Afghanistan, so many Christians were standing behind George Bush um, and really just saying, yeah, that's the will of God. And, uh, you know, it was tragic. And now in this time when the world is united you know, many people are, are just outraged by Putin's invasions of, of the Ukraine, which, yes, that's, it's outlandish, it's outrageous, what, what a crime, and just what a, a, a horrible moment for the Ukrainian people. And I just grieve what's happening to the Ukrainians, and, and we must stand with them in full-on solidarity. However, we mustn't do that in a way where we're just um, on a pedestal. We, especially in the West, we need to recognize how we've been complicit in invasions that were as bad or worse. You know, uh, the United States, uh, we invaded a sovereign nation based on fake news, you know, based on false claims that there were weapons of mass destruction that were never found. And we uh, are responsible for just huge numbers of deaths and massive destruction and um, all kinds of chaos throughout the Middle East that happened in um, Iraq and also Afghanistan and in Syria and so many other places around the world. 
you know, my and my wife Gracie's own coming to awareness um, happened in Guatemala in the 1980s when we traveled down there in 1980-81 and became aware of this civil war that was happening that um, when we crossed over the border and we were stopped seven times in the first three hours uh, by armed, you know, military people who had their machine guns trained on us and and we lived there during a six-month period where there were uh, all kinds of mass, um, you know, I mean, genocidal mass executions of villagers in the highlands of Guatemala. And this was done by, um, you know, by a right-wing military dictatorship. And they'd been put into place earlier in 1950s with when the CIA overthrew Jacobo Arbenz, who was a president, he was a you know, Presbyterian elder and, um, you know, active Christian who was a reformist president who was elected and wanted to bring about a land reform on behalf of the landless majority of, of peasants, you know, indigenous people in Guatemala. And he was denounced as a communist because uh, John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, they were both um, head of the CIA and head of the State Department. They were on the board of the United Fruit Company. And so the United States did a big smear campaign accusing Arbenz of, of being a communist and they overthrew him and they put into place a, a dictatorship and those dictatorships continued all the way into the 80s and 90s and were responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths. And um, those bodies, you know, were, um, you know, were just, uh, many of them have been unearthed. And I've been to the, um, you know, to the places where they are piecing together the bones of those victims in order to give back the remains to the family members. And, and so this, this work of bringing to light the injustices and um, exposing the crimes of, you know, those who have, have slain, you know, just innocent people. This is part of the prophetic witness of the body of Christ. And it's part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is to step into that uh, prophetic exposure. And so if we're going to talk about stuff that's happening in Europe or, you know, what the Chinese are doing or other nations are doing, North Koreans, let's make sure that we take the log out of our own eyes uh, so that we can see clearly to take the speck, which are pretty big logs also, out of the eyes of, you know, of the Russians and the Chinese and anybody else. And uh, so Jesus in Matthew 23 he says, therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise people and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Well, you can see why. Because if these people are exposing injustices of perpetrators that have been covered over, they're not going to be welcomed, right? They're, these aren't people that are just talking about only by grace. These are, these are people that are also coming like Jesus came knowing the secrets of people's hearts and exposing uh, bloodshed, injustice. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I mean, listen to Jesus. He's exposing the injustices of, you know, of committed against past um, Israelite uh, actors, right? By the people of Israel. And he's saying, you all are the same people. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation, Jesus says. So 
I think we need to really, really be, you know, be on our, on our, you know, like studying these materials and, and understanding. And uh, I believe that Isaiah 26, 20 to 21 and Matthew 10, 26 to 27 are highly relevant to the times in which we live right now. This is a period when the sins of the powerful are being increasingly brought to light. Victims of clergy, politician, or anyone's sexual abuse are coming forward to tell their stories, aren't they? You know, the Me Too movement. The bodies of the First Nations children are being unearthed from mass graves in Canadian residential schools. WikiLeaks like exposés of corruption, war atrocities, covert operations, corruptions, and gross economic inequalities. They're relentless right now. And we mustn't be covering those over and be part of the cover-up at all. You know, there's a lot of people that would like to see U.S. history taught in a positive light without any reference to, um, like, the fact that we were founded taking the land uh, of Native peoples and, you know, building up a lot of our country using slave labor. A lot of people would like that just to be deleted right out of the history books so that children will have a positive view of the USA. Well, Christians must have nothing to do with that. Um, scientists and activists document and decry with urgency the disappearance of species and polar ice caps due to global warming, don't they? And many people today are rightly identifying, lamenting, and denouncing historical, generational, and current traumas. And uh, they're refusing to remain silent in the interests of healing and justice, and we must join them. All of this shows that God's judgment is underway as the movement of sacred history, um, and it includes all the deeds of darkness coming into light. That's part of the movement of sacred history of the kingdom of God coming, is, uh, is, that, is that the Lord's coming out of his place and he's punishing the iniquities, the lawlessness, and the, the earth will no longer cover its slain. And, and it's uncovered through the prophetic ministry of disciples of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus must have nothing to do with cover-ups, as I've already said, but rather we must be at the forefront of this kind of revelatory, act, revelatory activism guided by Jesus himself and the Holy Spirit. But often secular activists are leading the way, and we mustn't um, we must learn from them. Today's revealers include secular whistleblowers like Julian Assange, Edward Snowden, and Chelsea Manning, as well as many other organizations such as Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, Platform to Protect Whistleblowers. I mean, there's so many others. So, um, you know, let's, let's get ourselves up to speed and... Um, you know, disciples of Jesus, we must engage in this kind of prophetic exposure as Jesus himself modeled. And this requires deliberate watchfulness and prayer, followed by bold and appropriate witness. Going into our rooms and shutting the door, as indicated in Isaiah 26 and Matthew 6, must not be escapist. Rather, it involves first a deep recognition of our worsening situation that would alert us to the need to enter our rooms in the first place. Things are only going to become more dire, and we must resist denial and false hopes. Jesus calls us to pray to our Father there in the secret place where our identity becomes clarified. As we come to know 
more fully ourselves as sons and daughters in God's family, in the kingdom of God's Son, Jesus Christ. There in the secret place, we listen for words which nurture, empower, expose root issues, and direct our steps, showing us our course of action, the way of righteousness in Jesus' liberation movement. I encourage you to sign up for a course that we're going to have uh, led by a, a good friend of mine who lives in France near Geneva, whose name is Jonathan Frericks. It's called Discerning the Times. And uh, we're going to be looking at global hotspots, and it'll be like a eight to 10 week course beginning on um, March 28th. It'll be happening on Wednesdays. And you can find out about it at um, www.peopleseminary.org and sign up. And uh, God bless you.